The Wedding by H. L. Mencken. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wedding, a Stage Direction. The scene is a church in an American city of about half a million population, and the time is about eleven o'clock of a fine morning in early spring. The neighborhood is well-to-do, but not quite fashionable. That is to say, most of the families of the vicinage keep two servants, alas, more or less intermittently, and eat dinner at half-past six, and about one in every four boasts a colored butler, who attends to the fires, washes windows, and helps with the sweeping, and a last year's automobile. The heads of these families are merchandise brokers, jobbers in notions, hardware, and drugs, manufacturers of candy, hats, badges, office furniture, blank books, picture frames, wire goods and patent medicines, managers of steamboat lines, district agents of insurance companies, owners of commercial printing offices and other such businessmen of substance, and the prosperous lawyers and popular family doctors who keep them out of trouble. In one block live a congressman and two college professors, one of whom has written an unimportant textbook and got himself into who's who in America. In the block above lives a man who once ran for mayor of the city and came near being elected. The wives of these householders wear good clothes and have a liking for a reasonable gaiety, but very few of them can pretend to what is vaguely called social standing, and, to do them justice, not many of them waste any time lamenting it. They have, taking one with another, about three children apiece, and are good mothers. A few of them belong to women's clubs or flirt with the suffragettes, but the majority can get all of the intellectual stimulation they crave in the Ladies' Home Journal and the Saturday Evening Post, with Vogue added for its fashions. Most of them, deep down in their hearts, suspect their husbands of secret frivolity, and about 10% have the proofs, but it is rare for them to make rows about it, and the divorce rate among them is thus very low. Themselves indifferent cooks, they are unable to teach their servants the art, and so the food they set before their husbands and children is often such as would make a Frenchman cut his throat. But they are diligent housewives otherwise. They see to it that the windows are washed, that no one tracks mud into the hall, that the servants do not waste coal, sugar, soap, and gas, and that the family buttons are always sewed on. In religion these estimable wives are pious in habit, but somewhat nebulous in faith. That is to say, they regard any person who specifically refuses to go to church as a heathen, but they themselves are by no means regular in attendance, and not one in ten of them could tell you whether transubstantiation is a Roman Catholic or a Dunkard doctrine. About 2% have dallied more or less gingerly with Christian science, their average period of belief being one year. The church we are in is, like the neighborhood and its people, well-to-do but not fashionable. It is Protestant in faith and probably Episcopalian. The pews are of a thick yellow-brown oak, severe in pattern and hideous in color. In each there is a long, removable cushion of a dark, purplish, dirty hue, with here and there some of its hair stuffing showing. 
The stained glass windows, which were all bought ready-made and depict scenes from the New Testament, commemorate the virtues of departed worthies of the neighborhood, whose names appear, in illegible black letters, in the lower panels. The floor is covered with a carpet of some tough, fibrous material, apparently a sort of grass, and along the center aisle it is much worn. The normal smell of the place is rather less unpleasant than that of most other halls, for on the one day when it is regularly crowded practically all of the persons gathered together have been very recently bathed. On this fine morning, however, it is full of heavy mortuary perfumes, for a couple of florists' men have just finished decorating the chancel with flowers and potted palms. Just behind the chancel rail, facing the center aisle, there is a prie dieu, and to either side of it are great banks of lilies, carnations, gardenias, and roses. Three or four feet behind the prie dieu and completely concealing the high altar, there is a dense jungle of palms. Those in the front rank are authentically growing in pots, but behind them the florist's men have artfully placed some more durable and hence more profitable sophistications. Anon the reverend clergyman, emerging from the vestry room to the right, will pass along the front of this jungle to the prie dieu, and, so framed in flowers, face the congregation with his saponaceous smile. The florist's men, having completed their labors, are preparing to depart. The older of the two, a man in the fifties, shows the ease of an experienced hand by taking out a large plug of tobacco and gnawing off a substantial chew. The desire to spit, seizing him shortly, he proceeds to gratify it by a trick long practiced by gas-fitters, musicians, caterers' helpers, piano-movers, and other such alien invaders of the domestic hearth. That is to say, he hunts for a place where the carpet is loose along the chancel rail, finds it where two lengths join, deftly turns up a flap, spits upon the bare floor, and then lets the flap fall back, finally giving it a pat with the sole of his foot. This done, he and his assistant leave the church to the sexton, who has been sweeping the vestibule, and, after passing the time of day with the two men who are putting up a striped awning from the door to the curb, disappear into a nearby speakeasy, there to wait and refresh themselves until the wedding is over and it is time to take away their lilies, their carnations, and their synthetic palms. It is now a quarter past eleven, and two flappers of the neighborhood, giggling and arm in arm, approach the sexton and inquire of him if they may enter. He asks them if they have tickets, and when they say they haven't, he tells them that he ain't got no right to let them in, and don't know nothing about what the rule is going to be. At some weddings, he goes on, hardly nobody ain't allowed in, but then again, sometimes they don't scarcely look at the tickets at all. The two flappers retire, abashed, and as the sexton finishes his sweeping, there enters the organist. The organist is a tall, thin man of melancholy, uramic aspect, wearing a black slouch hat with a wide brim and a yellow overcoat that barely reaches to his knees. A pupil in his youth of a man who had once studied, irregularly and briefly, with Charles-Marie Widor, he acquired thereby the artistic temperament, and with it a vast fondness for malt liquor. 
His mood this morning is acidulous and depressed, for he spent yesterday evening in a Pilsner Ausschank with two former members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and it was 3 a.m. before they finally agreed that Johann Sebastian Bach, all things considered, was a greater man than Beethoven, and so parted amicably. Sourness is the precise sensation that wells within him. He feels vinegary. His blood runs cold. He wishes he could immerse himself in bicarbonate of soda. But the call of his art is more potent than the protest of his poisoned and quaking liver, and so he manfully climbs the spiral stairway to his organ loft. Once there, he takes off his hat and overcoat, stoops down to blow the dust off the organ keys, throws the electrical switch which sets the bellows going, and then proceeds to take off his shoes. This done, he takes his seat, reaches for the pedals with his stockinged feet, tries an experimental 32-foot subcontra C, and then wanders gently into a Bach toccata. It is his limbering-up piece. He always plays it as a prelude to a wedding job. It thus goes very smoothly and even brilliantly, but when he comes to the end of it and tackles the ensuing fugue, he is quickly in difficulties, and after four or five stumbling repetitions of the subject, he hurriedly improvises a crude coda and has done. Peering down into the church to see if his flounderings have had an audience, he sees two old maids enter, the one very tall and thin, and the other somewhat brisk and bunchy. They constitute the vanguard of the nuptial throng, and as they proceed hesitatingly up the center aisle, eager for good seats but afraid to go too far, the organist wipes his palms upon his trousers' legs, squares his shoulders, and plunges into the program that he has played at all weddings for fifteen years past. It begins with Mendelssohn's spring song, Pianissimo. Then comes Rubinstein's melody in F, with a touch of forte toward the close, and then Nevin's Oh That We Two Were Maying, and then the Chopin waltz in A-flat, opus 69, number 1, and then the spring song again, and then a free fantasia upon the rosary, and then a Moskowski mazurka, and then the Dvorak humoresque, with its heart-rending cry in the middle, and then some vague and turbulent thing, apparently the disjecta membra of another fugue, and then Tchaikovsky's Autumn, and then Elgar's Salut d'Amour, and then the spring song a third time, and then something or other from one of the Pierre Gint suites, and then an hurrah or two from the Hallelujah Chorus, and then Chopin again, and Nevin, and Elgar, and... But meanwhile, there is a growing activity below. First comes a closed automobile bearing the six ushers, and soon after it another automobile bearing the bridegroom and his best man. The bridegroom and the best man disembark before the side entrance of the church and make their way into the vestry room, where they remove their hats and coats and proceed to struggle with their cravats and collars before a mirror which hangs on the wall. The room is very dingy. A baize-covered table is in the center of it, and around the table stand six or eight chairs of assorted designs. One wall is completely covered by a bookcase, through the glass doors of which one may discern piles of cheap Bibles, hymn-books, and back-numbers of the parish magazine. In one corner is a small washstand. The best man takes a flat flask of whiskey from his pocket, looks about him for a glass, finds it on the washstand, rinses it at the tap, fills it with a policeman's drink, and hands it to the bridegroom. 
The latter downs it at a gulp. Then the best man pours out one for himself. The ushers, reaching the vestibule of the church, have handed their silk hats to the sexton and entered the sacred edifice. There was a rehearsal of the wedding last night, but after it was over the bride ordered certain incomprehensible changes in the plan, and the ushers are now completely at sea. All they know clearly is that the relatives of the bride are to be seated on one side, and the relatives of the bridegroom on the other. But which side for one and which side for the other? They discuss it heatedly for three minutes, and then find that they stand three for putting the bride's relatives on the left side, and three for putting them on the right side. The debate, though instructive, is interrupted by the sudden entrance of seven women in a group. They are headed by a truculent old battleship, possibly an aunt or something of the sort, who fixes the nearest usher with a knowing, suspicious glance and motions to him to show her the way. He offers her his right arm and they start up the center aisle, with the six other women following in irregular order, and the five other ushers scattered among the women. The leading usher is tortured damnably by doubts as to where the party should go. If they are aunts, to which house do they belong, and on which side are the members of that house to be seated? What if they are not aunts, but merely neighbors, or perhaps an association of former cooks, parlor maids, nurse girls, or strangers? The sufferings of the usher are relieved by the battleship, who halts majestically about twenty feet from the altar, and motions her followers into a pew to the left. They file in, silently, and she seats herself next to the aisle. All seven settle back and wriggle for room. It is a tight fit. Who, in point of fact, are these ladies? Don't ask the question. The ushers never find out. No one ever finds out. They remain a joint mystery for all time. In the end, they become a sort of tradition, and years hence, when two of the ushers meet, they will cackle over old Dreadnought and her six cruisers. The bride, grown old and fat, will tell the tale to her daughter, and then to her granddaughter. It will grow more and more strange, marvelous, incredible. Variorum versions will spring up. It will be adapted to other weddings. The Dreadnought will become an apparition, a witch, the devil in skirts. And as the years pass, the date of the episode will be pushed back. By 2017, it will be dated 1150. By 2475, it will take on a sort of sacred character, and there will be a footnote referring to it in the latest revised version of the New Testament. It is now a quarter to twelve, and of a sudden the vestibule fills with wedding guests. Nine-tenths of them, perhaps even nineteen-twentieths, are women, and most of them are beyond thirty-five. Scattered among them, hanging on to their skirts, are about a dozen little girls, one of them a youngster of eight or thereabout, with spindle shanks and shining morning face, entranced by her first wedding. Here and there lurks a man. Usually he wears a hurried, unwilling, protesting look. He has been dragged from his office on a busy morning, forced to rush home and get into his cutaway coat, and then marched to the church by his wife. One of these men, much hustled, has forgotten to have his shoes shined. He is intensely conscious of them, and tries to hide them behind his wife's skirt as they walk up the aisle. Accidentally, he steps upon it and gets a look over the shoulder, which lifts his diaphragm an inch and turns his liver to water. This man will be court-martialed when he reaches home, and he knows it. 
He wishes that some foreign power would invade the United States and burn down all the churches in the country, and that the bride, the bridegroom, and all the other persons interested in the present wedding were dead and in hell. The ushers do their best to seat these wedding guests in some sort of order, but after a few minutes the crowd at the doors becomes so large that they have to give it up, and thereafter all they can do is hold out their right arms ingratiatingly and trust to luck. One of them steps on a fat woman's skirt, tearing it very badly, and she has to be helped back to the vestibule. There she seeks refuge in a corner, under a stairway leading up to the steeple, and essays to repair the damage with pins produced from various nooks and crevices of her person. Meanwhile the guilty usher stands in front of her, mumbling apologies and trying to look helpful. When she finishes her work and emerges from her improvised dry dock, he again offers her his arm but she sweeps past him without noticing him and proceeds grandly to a seat far forward. She is a cousin to the bride's mother and will make a report to every branch of the family that all six ushers disgraced the ceremony by appearing at it far gone in liquor. Fifteen minutes are consumed by such episodes and divertisements. By the time the clock in the steeple strikes twelve, the church is well filled. The music of the organist, who has now reached Mendelssohn's spring song for the third and last time, is accompanied by a huge buzz of whispers, and there is much craning of necks and long-distance nodding and smiling. Here and there an unusually gorgeous hat is the target of many converging glances, and of as many more or less satirical criticisms. To the damp funeral smell of the flowers at the altar there has been added the cacoterous scents of forty or fifty different brands of talcum and rice powder. It begins to grow warm in the church, and a number of women open their vanity bags and duck down for stealthy dabs at their noses. Others, more reverent, suffer the agony of augmenting shines. One, a trickster, has concealed powder in her pocket handkerchief and applies it dexterously while pretending to blow her nose. The bridegroom in the vestry room, entering upon the second year, or is it the third, of his long and ghastly wait, grows increasingly nervous, and when he hears the organist pass from the spring song into some more sonorous and stately thing, he mistakes it for the wedding march from Lohengrin, and is hot for marching upon the altar at once. The best man, an old hand, restrains him gently, and administers another sedative from the bottle. The bridegroom's thoughts turn to gloomy things. He remembers sadly that he will never be able to laugh at Benedict's again, that his days of low Rabelaisian wit and carefree scoffing are over, that he is now the very thing he mocked so gaily but yesteryear. Like a drowning man, he passes his whole life in review, not, however, that part which is past, but that part which is to come. Odd fancies throng upon him. He wonders what his honeymoon will cost him, what there will be to drink at the wedding breakfast, what a certain girl in Chicago will say when she hears of his marriage. Will there be any children? He rather hopes not, for all those he knows appear so greasy and noisy, but he decides that he might conceivably compromise on a boy. But how is he going to make sure that it will not be a girl? The thing as yet is a medical impossibility, but medicine is making rapid strides. Why not wait until the secret is discovered? This sapient compromise pleases the bridegroom, and he proceeds to a consideration of various problems of finance. And then, of a sudden, the organist swings unmistakably into Lohengrin, and the best man grabs him by the arm. 
There is now great excitement in the church. The bride's mother, two sisters, three brothers, and three sisters-in-law have just marched up the center aisle and taken seats in the front pew, and all the women in the place are craning their necks toward the door. The usual electrical delay ensues. There is something the matter with the bride's train, and the two bridesmaids have a deuce of a time fixing it. Meanwhile, the bride's father, in tight pantaloons and tighter gloves, fidgets and fumes in the vestibule, the six ushers crowd about him inanely, and the sexton rushes to and fro like a rat in a trap. Finally, all being ready, with the ushers formed two abreast, the sexton pushes a button, a small buzzer sounds in the organ loft, and the organist, as has been said, plunges magnificently into the fanfare of the Lohengrin march. Simultaneously, the sexton opens the door at the bottom of the main aisle, and the wedding procession gets under way. The bride and her father march first. Their step is so slow, about one beat to two measures, that the father has some difficulty in maintaining his equilibrium, but the bride herself moves steadily and erectly, almost seeming to float. Her face is thickly encrusted with talcum in its various forms, so that she is almost a dead white. She keeps her eyelids lowered modestly, but is still acutely aware of every glance fastened upon her, not in the mass, but every glance individually. For example, she sees clearly, even through her eyelids, the still, cold smile of a girl in Pew 8R, a girl who once made an unwomanly attempt upon the bridegroom's affections, and was routed and put to flight by superior strategy. And her ears are open, too. She hears every, how sweet, and, oh, lovely, and, ain't she pale, from the latitude of the last pew to the very glacis of the altar of God. While she has thus made her progress up the hymeneal chute, the bridegroom and his best man have emerged from the vestry room and begun the short march to the prie-dieu. They walk haltingly, clumsily, uncertainly, stealing occasional glances at the advancing bridal party. The bridegroom feels of his lower right-hand waistcoat pocket. The ring is still there. The best man wriggles his cuffs. No one, however, pays any heed to them. They are not even seen, indeed, until the bride and her father reach the open space in front of the altar. There, the bride and the bridegroom find themselves standing side by side, but not a word is exchanged between them, nor even a look of recognition. They stand motionless, contemplating the ornate cushion at their feet, until the bride's father and the bridesmaids file to the left of the bride, and the ushers, now wholly disorganized and imbecile, drape themselves in an irregular file along the altar rail. Then, the music having died down to a faint murmur, and a hush having fallen upon the assemblage, they look up. Before them, framed by foliage, stands the reverend gentleman of God, who will presently link them in indissoluble chains, the estimable rector of the parish. He has got there just in time. It was, indeed, a close shave. But no trace of haste or of anything else of a disturbing character is now visible upon his smooth, glistening, somewhat feverish face. That face is wholly occupied by his official smile, a thing of oil and honey all compact, a balmy, unctuous illumination, the secret of his success in life. Slowly his cheeks puff out, gleaming like soap bubbles. Slowly 
he lifts his prayer book from the predia and holds it droopingly. Slowly, his soft, caressing eyes engage it. There is an almost imperceptible stiffening of his frame. His mouth opens with a faint click. He begins to read. The ceremony of marriage has begun. End of The Wedding Read for LibriVox.org by Ben Adams